This is a Federal News Network podcast. No one knew for certain whether Russia used a hypersonic missile against Ukraine. The Russia's leaders lie about everything else. But there's no doubt Russia, like China, is pursuing such weapons. My next guests argue the U.S. needs to step up its own hypersonics program. Joining me from Purdue University's Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy, Director Bonnie Glick and Senior Research Fellow Dan DeLaurentis. Good to have you both on. Good to be here, Tom. Thank you. And let's define our terms here to begin with. Hypersonics means something that flies at five times the speed of sound as an offensive weapon, but it doesn't have to have an explosive on it to do damage. Is that correct? That That is correct, absolutely. And, of course, there are other types of vehicles that fly faster than, than Mach 5. In fact, I like to tell people the space shuttle, or if we all remember the space shuttle, uh, when that orbiter came back from orbit, It was definitely a gliding hypersonic vehicle flying very fast through the atmosphere. And you may remember it had to have those special tiles underneath to control the heating. That's very intense. As you fly faster and faster above Mach 5, the temperatures surrounding the vehicle get very hot. Yeah, so that means a hypersonic missile, were we to able to develop one, would be kind of hot by the time it hit its target? Not so much affecting the, the target, as you said earlier, the, the speed of the vehicle itself can, uh, with its kinetic energy can do a lot of damage. That The high temperature really comes into play. is is very difficult to control a vehicle that's flying so hot because you may, if you're not doing a good de- design job, you may find the vehicle melting in the wrong places and it won't hit its target. Got it. And what is strategic importance of these, Bonnie? I mean, we've got missiles that can go anywhere and hit anything, and they come in all sizes from $1 million to $100 million. The significance of a hypersonic missile launch, particularly as the Russians claim to have done in the war with Ukraine last month, is less the level of lethality of the missile and more the level of signaling. What Russia did in its launch, its purported launch, is show the United States that it has hypersonic missile capability, that it is a lethal weapons capability, and to highlight that he is taking the war in Ukraine to a different level. And this is something, too, that the United States and NATO urgently recognize. Got it. What is the status now of U.S. hypersonic? Give us the broad picture here. If I recall, the Navy had a ship-launched program that it abandoned a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago or so because it just for whatever reason, technically was not practical. Hypersonic programs kind of come and go because it is still a very difficult technical challenge to get these systems to work. And there's really two classes of systems uh, people are trying to develop. One is called a boost glide, where you just put a hypersonic glider on top of a rocket, similar to the space shuttle, as I mentioned earlier. And that rocket boosts up high and fast into the atmosphere and then releases that glide vehicle. That's the kind that Russia purportedly has used. And the U.S. has uh, programs with the Army and the Navy that are testing and hoping to field within the next couple of years. Now, the more advanced version of a hypersonic system is what we call air breathing. So kind of like an airplane engine, the engine on board that missile would ingest the air and burn it with fuel. And so you get much greater speeds and maneuverability with an air breathing system. And just a couple, about one month ago, the U.S. has announced a successful test of one of our air-breathing hypersonic weapons. So lots of testing, 
because it's very difficult to get these things to work when you need them. And just because I like toys, it sounds like one system would be slowing down from launch as it gets toward the target, whereas the other one could speed up as it gets toward the target. Well, yes, you could say that. But both of them, if designed correctly, will definitely uh, hit targets with very significant speeds because even that boost glide vehicle, don't think of it as just floating down. It's going very fast and it's designed like a kind of an arrow, if you will, so that it continues as it descends due to the force of gravity, it, it still continues to accelerate in certain parts of its mission. We're speaking with Dan De Laurentiis. He's the senior research fellow and with Bonnie Glick, the director at Purdue University's Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy. And so does having this capability change the calculus of warfare? Is it a really strategic weapon type of thing? maybe somewhat less than nuclear weapons, but more than conventional weapons. Bonnie? Tom, it's a very good question, and it is a great unknown as things stand right now. One of the things that we're all hearing about in the news is that China is testing hypersonic missile capabilities. Russia claims to have launched a hypersonic missile. There is not a large stockpile anywhere of hypersonic missiles ready to deploy in warfare. So it is a long-term prospect. It does indicate to us what the future of warfare in a large-scale battle could look like. But for now, it's something that, as I mentioned, the Russians are signaling to the rest of the world, we got it and we're not afraid to use it. And it sounds like for the United States, then the nation would have to make, the military would have to make choices because it sounds like there's a lot of possible formats to this ground launched to hit something in the air, ground launched to hit something on the ground, air launched, sea launched to hit things at sea and in the air. You see all the combinations, but there's no, it doesn't sound like one platform could do everything. That's absolutely the case. And and the balance you refer to is exactly right as well. And the balance in particular is between offense and defense. If you look at the history of just missile defense in general, an adversary creates a, a missile capability on offense. We need to develop an effective defense because if you have an effective defense, it can be a deterrent to your adversary to even use that. So really, beyond the speed of hypersonic vehicles and missiles, which people often focus on, it's the maneuverability at that speed that make them very difficult to defend against. And so the balance the U.S. is trying to strike right now, you know, dollars are not limited. They're large in the U.S. defense establishment, but not unlimited. How do you invest uh, the right amount in defense as well as investing on offense and get the right mix? Because... An effective battery of offensive systems combined with an effective defense is about the optimal way to make sure these are never used. Right. So then what about the intelligence that these missiles may or may not have? They can be just like a dumb dagger aimed. But the big change in missile work since the Munda days is how smart they are. Exactly right. And that's just an extension of what I mentioned of the maneuverability of these systems. So you can have dumb maneuverability. Or the more autonomy and intelligence you have, these maneuvers that a hypersonic missile would take could be in response to a perceived defense. And so you're absolutely right. Everything in the end kind of comes together where AI, artificial intelligence could actually be an enabler of hypersonic systems, even though people often think of those as two very separate 
investment areas for the DOD. And it's never, nobody ever says we have enough money to do everything we want in the military and people always advocate for their programs. But do you think that the amount that the United States military is spending on development of these is about right for the threat and the requirement? One of the things that we're seeing from uh, directly from the president is that the U.S. is looking at spending about $7 billion on hypersonic technology. That probably is a small number compared to what is needed to provide both, as Dan noted, the offensive as well as the defensive capabilities that are going to be required in any strategic engagement. So it's a start, but it's a great way to to engage with private industry to say, hey, you know, this is this is where we are in terms of the R&D investment that we're making in hypersonics. The actual build out and deployment of these, of course, will cost a, a lot more, cost the taxpayer. And so far, is most of the money OTA type of money that they're spending? And are they spending it with the so-called innovative parts of the economy? Or is this just the domain of the same old, same old weapons contractors? It's a little bit of everything, actually. I think there is a, an increasing desire to tap not only you know, smaller innovative companies, but also universities. I should say like Purdue University that have stepped up and said, we're willing to put on some of the security constraints that are needed to support this particular mission, because there are some testing resources that are only available at universities that are needed for this hypersonics mission we're on. And so, but when the rubber hits the road and you want to produce these vehicles at numbers, the industry primes are are really the only ones equipped to do that. So you really can't exclude anyone from the ecosystem. But Purdue would not test it out on Indiana, would it? No, no, we would not. We, we like all of our, even our Hoosier farmland is, is quite valuable. So we would never do that. All right. I, I do want to add something to the prior question about the investment. Part of the reason we're struggling to need more right now is because after the, the U.S. has really led the development of hypersonic, hypersonic technology for 40 years. But after the Cold War ended, we kind of turned off the spigot. And then lo and behold, two decades later, when we need to turn the spigot on and have solutions yesterday, the spigot don't work that fast. And so it's just so tough, right, to make these 20 year in the future guesses of where, you know, where you should be putting all your all your money or much of your money. But regardless of the difficulty of the choice, the fact that we underinvested in hypersonics is kind of catching us a little bit right now. Dan DeLaurentis is Senior Research Fellow at Purdue University's Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And Bonnie Glick is the director. Thank you as well. A pleasure always. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses 
and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. 
Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.